This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. We're sponsored by Neomodern.com, bringing concierge photo printing and framing to everyone with a smartphone. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neomodern, and grumpy old man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Rubin. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? It's doing great. I haven't seen you in a little while. It's good to see you. I, I know. I mean, virtually or otherwise. Yeah, well, like our whole world is now through these screens, so it's starting to feel kind of normal. Like I interact with everybody this way now. It used to just be sort of for shows, and yeah, and now, oh, it's good. Well, this is uh, the norm. This is the norm. Well, thanks. Uh, I-, I wanted to introduce you to someone uh, who I brought I'm on today. Very excited. It's always fun when we have guests. Um, so, Suzanne, I want to introduce you to Peter Fetterman. Peter, this is Suzanne. Hi, Suzanne. Nice to meet you. Hello, Peter. Nice to meet you as well. Um, I do want to say, so Peter is certainly, and correct me if this is too over the top, but he's one of the preeminent gallerists for photography uh, and someone who has tastes, I have to say, remarkably similar to my own, which I think makes me <laughs> like him very much. Um, and I don't know when we first met, maybe Peter, you remember, it could have been in APAD or San Francisco, but um, but I, I love his stuff. Um, he runs the Peter Fetterman Gallery in Los Angeles. Santa Monica. And- Santa Monica. Yeah, so if you if you Google Los Angeles, you won't find us. Really? It's that Santa Monica is its own territory. Is it? Yes. Okay. You ever get out of there? Okay, no, it's fine. So in Santa Monica, and of course, geography hardly matters anymore, right? It doesn't even right. matter where you are. So Peter, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. That's great. Um, so uh, I wanted to bring you on. First of all, you, your gallery sends out some of the greatest weekly notices of work it's both educational and inspiring uh, the one i just was looking at the other day was uh like if you were trapped on an island with 10 photos and you'd pr- shown one of the pictures that you thought you'd be stuck oh. with <laughs> manuel alvarez bravo the daydreamer nice it, what what else is on your list <laughs> oh well we've we've been doing these daily power photography blasts so i think we're now up to like 42 or 43 so if you go on our website and you'll see on the homepage, Power of Photography, and you can see all of the uh, daily images we've been sending since we've had lockdown. Is that when you started this? Was that just a lockdown? Yeah, thing? It, oh. it was just some form of self-therapy for me to keep myself inspired and going. And it's, to my amazement, has become this kind of cult. And people <laughs> say... This helps them get through the day every day and don't stop doing it. So I'm under a lot of pressure to keep the standard really high (laughs) and to keep the anecdotes witty and informative and hopefully powerful. Well, I will say anytime I see you, you've got great anecdotes. How long have you been a gallerist? Like you seem like you've been doing this for as long as anyone. I'm very old. So I've been, I've had my gallery for... (laughs) 32 plus years and I've been collecting for like 40 years so I suppose you could say I've seen a lot of images in my time is that a is that a thing you start as a collector and when you can't collect anymore you turn it into a business and that's how you become a gallerist you, you become it takes you over so I have to warn any of your listeners that if you get turned on to collecting this could really 
change your life dramatically. As it is it a did sickness, me. right? It's a disease, yeah. and hopefully, <laughs> it's, it's it's not a bad disease, you know. <laughs> but I am addicted, and uh, you know, the madness of of my life is that somebody buys a photograph, and I take the money they've just given me and spend it three and a half minutes later to to, to get more photo <laughs> <another crack>. photograph. <laughs> it's, that's it. It's a it never-ending thing. Well, that's how you end up with 7,000 photographs. That's um, exactly how that happens. Yes. So, but you know, you can have worse vices, I think. You know, yeah. I don't drive a, I don't drive a fancy car, you know, I don't take drugs. I you know, I wear gap clothes, you know. But you've got one of the finest <laughs> bunch of photographs anyone has probably seen well, ever. What I mean, how, what did you start with? Like what got you into it? Um how did I start? I started when I just landed from England 40 years ago to Los Angeles and I was taken to a dinner party. And I was, you know, the, the, part, the host of the party was a photographer and it turned out he had this very small but beautiful group of photos and he was selling them because he wanted to buy another car. He also collected vintage cars. And so the conversation came up that these I think there were 20 photos on the wall were for sale. And I became totally obsessed with one of them. It was an image by a photographer called Matt Yavno, called The Heiress, which was um, an image of a, of a movie premiere. And I had a former life before I became a, a, a drug photo addict. I, I made some <laughs> films. So this kind of resonated with me in terms of its subject matter. And I said to the guy, well, well how much is this? And he said, it's $400. And I had $2,000 to my name. And I was driving a beat up Pinto that really didn't have any brakes. And if I was sane and rational, I would have spent the $400 getting new brakes. So maybe I would live, but I had to buy this photo. And that set me on a journey. Of, <laughs> no uh, stopping you. No stopping <laughs> you. So it just takes one, one hit. That's what and, it and, Yavno uh, is, I thought he was like a San Francisco photographer. Well, he did a great body of work in San Francisco. He lived in Los Angeles and I subsequently met him. So he was like the second photographer I'd ever met in my life. And he was just this amazing man. And I thought he was brilliant and completely under, undervalued, underrated. So to I this started day. to this day. Yeah. You know, the, the prints are so beautiful. Yavno so did I'm, that. That Muscle Beach picture in yeah, Venice. That's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's fantastic. And he did a great body of work in San Francisco. And we actually just sold his great image of Powell Street. Mm. Um, he's most famous for the turnaround one, uh, which is also really great. Excellent. So that, that's how I started. And then I started, I did what I tell my clients to do. It's called photo aerobics. I used to get up very early in the morning and devour every single monograph on any photographer I could find <laughs> before I before my day began. So that was my quiet kind of self-absorption time to study. So I'm, I suppose yeah. I'm, I'm an autodidact. Um, <laughs> Were you friends with all of, like, most of the photographers who you carried? Yes. To... I mean, that to me was part of the, that was my qualification to work with somebody. A, I had to respect their work. And B, I had to respect them as a human being um, because the relationship is so intense and you work so hard. You have to do it for people you really like and believe in. And, you know, along the way you meet 
certain photographers who are obviously very talented and maybe even great, but if they're a pain in the neck to deal with or a nightmare, life's too short. That's been my kind of mantra. Who would you say is the greatest pain in the neck? Of the oh, I can't say that because they might be listening or <laughs> their heirs might be listening. So I could be sued for libel, you I know? See. So okay. I, I, I want to be kind of English and discreet and not name names. And we'll, we'll absolutely give that to you. I think that's that's only fair. Please respect, uh, question... please respect that <laughs> client privacy uh, aspect. When you fall in love with a when you fall in love with a, a, a picture or a portrait, and you sort of take it into the collection, how do you part with it? Like that first picture that you bought, how do you still have it, or did you sort of no? Um, I had to I, sell I had it and to, use the money to well, buy more. <laughs> I had to sell. I had this like nice collection before I started my gallery but I had to sell it to, to start my new life. And right. uh, I'm a, I, I, as you get older, you get this kind of quasi-Buddhist feeling that you've, you've acquired something, you've possessed it, you've lived with it, you've learned from mm -hmm. it, and now it's time to pass it on. So it's that kind of unbearable lightness of being. You know, it's, it's become part of your gestalt and part of your, in your psyche and... You have to let it go because you have to deal with reality. I mean, why did I sell my photos? There's two words. It's called school fees. You know, um, you, when you when you're school fees. When, when you're a, <laughs> that took me a second. <laughs> when you when you're a parent, you know, there's, there's another one word called mortgage, and you know, <laughs> have to. I mean, I live a bit of a fantasy life. I live in my own kind of like dream-like world, anyway, but. There are certain realities even somebody like me has got to <laughs> like school fees and you know bills. How is photography as um, something that people own? How has it changed when it went from uh, silver prints and platinum prints to digital? Was there a, a meaningful change? Did that open up the market or or well, it, cheapen it, it in the, some way? The simple answer is people could get bigger photos. Um, the, the, the bias of my, my gallery has always been incredible respect for the craft of printmaking. And of course we do deal with, deal with some digital photographers and I understand that and I try not to be a total fuddy-duddy, but to me what attracted me and still does is the power of the print, apart from the power of the image. I like to think that, you know, the photographer, he or she has slaved away in a dark room. And for every one print he or she will sign, they may have destroyed 20 or 30 because it doesn't uh, come up to their exacting standard of print quality. So for the most part, I try to deal with analog photography because that's where my heart is. That's where my interest in. That's where I think the real value is. I mean, I accept what digital can do, but I may not embrace it. Um, maybe it's a question of, you know, age, generation, whatever. I've yet to see a digital print that, you know, knocks my socks off as much as a, as a great, you know, Paul Caponegro or a George Tice or an Irving Penn or mm -hmm. any of the greats that we, you know, deal with. What are the tells for you? What is the, I mean, like, what do you miss when you see a digital print? It's an approach. The, the immediacy aspect of digital prints takes away from, for me, 
the pain and the dedication and the patience and what it takes to create a great analog print. And there's something about the kind of people who shoot digitally and the kind of people who shoot analog. There's something in their makeup. Uh, I hate to say it, but you know, every kid who comes out of art school, photo school, whatever, the first thing they want to be is rich and famous. And the majority of the prints that you know, I've collected and deal with still were made by people who had a need to express themselves. There was no market when they were creating these, these photos. Mm -hmm. You know, Edward Weston died penniless. Uh, most photographers couldn't survive unless they had, were teaching or whatever. It's a different approach to the art. It's a more silent, patient, I think more dedicated approach. Isn't you know, that still the case? In terms of what? Well, you can't, you, it's very hard for <clears throat> artists, photographer artists to support themselves as a photographer artist. Oh, that, that aspect. It is. It's still very difficult. Yeah. And I think, you, you know, you have to be very passionate. And, but to be a great artist, I think you don't have, you have to not sell out. Uh, and a lot of the great, great photographers I've known and worked with, I mean, people like Edward Bouba and Willy Rooney and Robert Duaneau, they did it because they had to do it. There was something in their soul that made them want to live that life. And they didn't do it to become rich or famous, uh, which a lot of people are attracted to the art world for, not just photographers. You know, every kid that comes out of art school, they want to be famous. They want to, they want to, they want to be a superstar. You, they want to be Damien Hirst. They want to be whoever, you know, Murakami, you know, whoever, whoever, who's the latest one cause. I mean, give me a break. You know, <clears throat> this art is churned out like, like in a factory with hundreds of assistants and it becomes a business. None of the great photographers I've ever worked with thought it was a business. They wouldn't, you know, people like Penti Samolati to this day won't let me raise his prices. Doesn't care. Doesn't care about fame or money. And none of these people did. Whereas I was listening to this YouTube with Oprah Winfrey the other day, and she says, well, the problem with young people is that everybody wants to be a brand. And it took me, you know, 30 years of struggle to become my brand. I think that's the problem with and here I sound like this old fart. <laughs> everybody wants everybody wants instant gratification. Yeah. And digital is instant gratification. And then you get into Photoshop and then you get into what is a photo, you know? What 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 semblance of reality does it actually mean? And what is a photo? Actually, I mean for you then, what what for is For me a photo? a photo is I see an image and I'm changed by it. I'm incredibly moved by it. I'm haunted by it. I have to possess it. That's a photo for me. I learn something from it. it I want it. I want it to breathe it. I want it to be inside me. Uh, that's a photo for me. You know, if I walk into a gallery and I see a ten foot by twelve foot, you know, digital print in an edition of three, there's about nothing. I want to throw up. And then it's $50,000 or $70,000. And I think, I got to get out of here. 
I'm going to lose my marbles. Yeah. At $70,000, you often talk about, and one of the things I, I've always really respected about you is you really believe in the democratization of it. It's yeah. such a, a populist <clears throat> art form. Anyone can do it. Anyone can own it. Talk about that a little bit. I, I hate the snootiness of the art world. I hate the pretension of it. And I, I know I incur the wrath of my colleagues when I say that editioning is nonsense. And I think if you love an image and you want to, you want to live with it, you, it should be somewhat affordable. And the moment it becomes so elitist and so untouchable, then it's not really an art form. Now that's kind of like, I'm digging in my own grave or I'm going to be assassinated by my fellow dealers. Uh, because when I go into galleries, particularly in New York, and I walk around and I see something I, I like, I can't see a price anywhere. I go up to the receptionist, I'm, I'm kind of judged. Uh, I, I ask, well, how much is the price? Well, I'll have to call the director to let you know. I mean, this is in a world of when we all want more transparency. This is such nonsense. Mm -hmm. And it happened to me, you know, just before the shutdown recently in, in New York, I want, you know, I went to see a, a show of a photographer I was interested in. And there was no price list. And the person at the front desk didn't have a price list anywhere. And I say, well, is this available? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> how, can you, how can you run a business like that? Or how can you think you're serving the interests of the artists you represent by behaving like that? So that's my bet noir in life. That's my kind of uh, campaign to bring transparency to the art world. Uh, for my own photography, I've, I've kind of had this position, which I only make one physical print. I want it to right. be like a painting or a sculpture where that, right. like, that's my one. You're the only person who's ever made an argument to me that I really sort of had to, it still gives me pause where I have the opposite feeling, which is if someone wants it, you should make them one. And, and, yeah. and not, it's not additioned at all. It's like you make them as people need them and yeah. people aren't you should collecting be flat, it. You should be flattered that somebody wants it. That's right. And make it as easy as possible for them to do that. I mean, you know, if, you, if you, you're a creative person and you have something to say and something to express, why not share it with someone? What are you going to be your own hoarder for, you know? <laughs> what, what are you building your own uh, monument to yourself and your art? Share it. Like I said, you you have a very persuasive <laughs> argument. <laughs> so, Michael, tomorrow I want you to get out there and make some more prints. I will. If someone wants one, okay. If someone wants a print, I will I've changed Please it up. Please call Michael at this number. Text me. <laughs> and I'll have it delivered to you by 3 o'clock. <laughs> hey, I'm curious. You So you've known so many amazing artists, photographers. Yeah. Is there something in their character that is similar in the photographers that are really good yes. that you have identified? What is that? Yeah. The really great ones are incredibly humble and very self-effacing. I mean, I remember having a dinner in Atlanta with, with Harry Callahan uh, a few months before he passed away. And I'm having dinner with this man you know, whose work I really loved. And I'm sitting in front of him and I'm, I'm like pinching myself and I'm thinking, this man is so quiet, he's so humble, he's so the opposite of egotistical. 
it's like having dinner with like a, a quiet insurance salesman. You know, he had a corduroy jacket and a, you know, a knit tie. And I'm thinking to I have to pinch myself. I'm sitting opposite one of the greatest 20th century artists. And he's, uh -huh. so hum and he's so quiet and humble. And that's what they all had. Willie Roney, the same. Duba, my God, the last thing they talk about is themselves. Whereas a lot of, quote, young photographers, that's the only thing they want to talk about. And so it's, yeah. it's maybe it's a generational thing. But I think there are a lot of great young photographers who also have that humility. But it's rare. Yeah. It was sort of a strange question. Um, I really liked what you were saying about kind of just falling in love with an image and falling in love with a story and, and sort of obviously a photographer needs to have something to say to be able to kind of create um, or a point of view to kind of create right. art and create these pieces. Have you ever fallen in love with a photograph and then talked to the photographer later and realized the story that you'd made up in your head or the story that you thought this image was about was actually completely different than what they'd intended? Very rarely, but, but it has happened. And sometimes, you know, I've fallen in love with, with an image, then I meet its maker. And then after maybe about half an hour. Fall out of love. I, 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 I've managed to fall out of love with it. Uh, it's like if only you'd stayed a little bit more quiet. Yeah, if, only I, if I'd known less. And maybe the key to that is to never meet the creator of, of an image you like. But for yeah. <laughs> me, it's part, and especially if you're going to get into some kind, kind of relationship, representative, you know, relationship with them. I think it's important to know who you're, you're dealing with, and who you're a dealer Absolutely. for. But it's so yeah. nice when you are getting a photograph to feel like you're connected to the artist, that you know them, that you've met them, you like them. It makes you like it more. I, I find it does because you have many, many good memories of how you had to search them out and what you went through to meet them. And sometimes it's easy and sometimes it was really difficult. I mean, for, for us to end up working with, say, Penti Samalati, you know, I spent a week with him in a Helsinki. And that, that's one of the week, the seven greatest days I've ever spent with any creative person. What did you do? What did you guys do? We, we ate a lot <laughs> and we talked a lot. And we looked a, a lot and, you know, he was a very gracious host, an amazing cook. <laughs> um, and I got to explore a great city I'd never been to, which is Helsinki. And uh, you feel more connected. You understand the nature of the images that you like better once you get to know the maker of them. Because in a way, their images are who they are. Right. Their, their personality, their values, uh, their taste is often you know, reflected in their work. And as you work with these artists for uh, um, extended periods of time, how does time sort of change their images or maybe how not necessarily their images, but how you see their images, like some of their older work, maybe you yeah. weren't as fond of before and then you've come to love it deeper or vice versa? I think... It's probably the latter. I think the more you work with somebody you really love and respect, the greater the art becomes for you, especially vis-a-vis -vis all those big, empty, large digital prints. <laughs> um, and I keep going back to people I loved 40 years ago and seeing new things in their work. 
so in a way the love at first sight is 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 continued and the love gets greater because uh, uh, we, when someone's great they're always going to be great you know mozart's great beethoven's great it doesn't you know that music doesn't become less powerful for you the older you get or the more often you know the more you listen to it you it becomes better sometimes a photographer Richer. might have had his uh, or her heyday like they might have been very productive in their 20s or 30s or something like that and now and they're in their 50s or 60s they don't have it do you ever see that or do people really get better as they as they I work think, their form i think some people who worked in a special period of time i mean i love the 1950s for some reason that has always been a magic decade for me you know i'm working on a fashion project now and the work of the 50s is so much more interesting than the work of the 70s or 80s it just seems to peter off for me um so i think every i mean robert frank had his heyday with the americans that was obviously his most uh, fertile period in his body of work and then it kind of got a little maybe contrived later on you know nova scotia or whatever mm-hmm. i mean i think there are prime periods but you know you look at somebody like picasso who's picasso's late period is still as great as it, most people's heyday mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> you know there, there's there's no rules you can be creative to the day you die somebody like lillian bassman who we worked with uh God, she was creating work till the day she died at 94. There's a wonderful photographer in San Francisco, Fred Lyon. Fred is in his 90s. I mean, he's still great and and amazing. So I think, you know, talent can keep you young, I hope. It's true. Like Imogene Cunningham and Ansel Adams. Ruth Bernhard was as as articulate and as great as she was when she started out. Yeah. Because the, the the important thing all these photographers have in common, Suzanne, answering your question a bit later again, <laughs> they all have this great childlike curiosity, and if you have it, you don't lose that, and that's the that's the key to longevity. I mean, I hope I can keep going as well. You know, I hope it's true for dealers as well. It is. For- <laughs> I was just going to say, do you feel it applies for you? I loved, I like the metaphor of like your visual aerobics or your uh, yeah. aesthetic aerobics. Um, I'm, what, I'm do you, what is your modern day fitness routine? <laughs> well, it's, it hasn't changed. In fact, it's got more intense. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about you know, this bizarre period of time we're living in, it's actually made me more energetic. I'm working harder than ever. I'm coming up with more creative ideas than I ever had because I'm not getting on a plane doing seven art fairs a year. I've been stuck yeah. at home and I'm trying to realize what, and that's why this little series, Power Photography series, has been so great because it's made me reappraise certain photographers and certain work. So I'm having a ball, you know, I, in a way I'm, <laughs> I'm dreading going back to whatever normal is because I've actually you know, enjoyed this. If I can say well, it, it's tragic, tragic times, and I feel bad about saying this because terrible things are happening, will happen still. But in a yeah. way, it's been a, a gift to me that I, my own creativity has uh, been fertile. And I think that has to be the silver lining, you know? I that think is that the silver lining. Be, I mean, yeah, when, the positive. When, when you live a life like I've been living for many years, I suppose it's a fast track life 
and it's basically like being in a rock and roll band when you're on <laughs> tour and you're doing seven, eight, you know, art fairs a year all over the world. And you literally, I can relate a little bit to Keith Moon, but you wake <laughs> up in your hotel <laughs> and you can't remember what city you're in. And that has yeah. happened to me. Suzanne, you must uh, resonate with that very well, right? I, I do actually rock, take pictures. Are you pictures. a rock star, Suzanne? <laughs> she is a rock I, star. I am also a rock star. <laughs> She's Keith Moon. Yes. Uh, no, I actually take pictures of the hotel doors. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you on the road a lot? Uh, I'm a creative director, so I work for an experiential agency. Uh, yeah. And obviously with in-person experiences kind of being brought yeah. to a standstill, um, I really haven't been traveling at all, which is is very strange. But I, yeah, I used to travel so much. I would take pictures of the hotel, the room yeah. numbers, because I yeah. would forget which hotel I was in or what my room number was, yeah, I used to which would be matches. quite embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. Photography in its early days in the Westin imaging Cunningham or the early days, it had a kind of a, it had a sort of a look. I don't think it was conceptual necessarily. Mm -hmm. They would take pictures of things, early modernists and stuff, but photography has, I guess my question is, has, has the subject matter, the way it's represented, has photography changed in the last 20 years, whether it's digital or not, but just because we are, are so inundated with images, the nature of photographing things, has that I mean, changed? I I think it has changed. It's not my cup of tea. And when someone says to me, conceptual, that's like an immediate turnoff because I know <laughs> I can't relate to it on any kind of basic human level. And there is a great interest in conceptual photography. I think museums love to promote it. I think a lot of museum curators you know, pat themselves on the back because they see things in images which somebody like me thinks are banal, but they find many layers of meaning in them and they write incredible curatorial speak texts on them, which, you know, I can't read and I can't even look at the images. So <laughs> I, I don't know what to say, but, you know, I'm, I'm off key. I'm out of my time. Maybe I was born too late. But there is, you're right, Michael, there is a lot of interest in conceptual photography. And, and, the, and this work is analyzed. And maybe the curators who promote this work and love this work, you know, look at an image like Willie Roney and they think it's old fashioned and boring and nostalgic and doesn't have any deep, deep meaning. But of course that's all crap, it does. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what's that expression? Shakana Songu, each one to his taste or her taste. Mm. So it's not my cup of tea. And if people enjoy it, great. It's not for me to say that, uh, or maybe I could say, it. I don't get William Eggleston. I'm not moved by the work. I'm sure it has many layers of meaning for certain people, but it, it, it doesn't haunt me. I don't enjoy it. It doesn't doesn't resonate with me. Mark Citrit and I have this sort of agreement yeah. that, like, we really dislike photography, where someone has to explain a lot oh, before you you're are. going to have appreciation <laughs> yeah. for it. It's like yeah. we feel like it should be enjoyable and appreciable Immediate. instantly. Immediate. Or, yeah, or I, I agree. It, or self evident, even if it grows on you, but it still doesn't have to be explained no, to you to no. develop that. When you need a curator to write a 300 page book explaining what it's about to you, then 
for me, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I guess I feel like it kind of walks a line because I think those images that don't puzzle you for a minute, that don't pull you in yeah. long enough for you to try to figure it out, it's then you brush it off. You're like, I understood it. It's like flipping through yeah. Instagram. You're like, okay, done, done, done. But for me, I think the images that really that hold me are the ones that I don't necessarily get right away. Yes, I don't want a 300-page dissertation to understand yeah. what the, uh, you know, what the chiaroscuro is actually yeah. trying to say and what it represents. But I, I also, I, I don't want to understand it necessarily in the first millisecond. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want yeah. my emotions to be moved. That, that's that's yeah. to me, my yeah. litmus test, and that's. I suppose I'm an emotional kind of guy. So, like, <laughs> when was the last time your emotions were moved? Like, what yeah. was the what was the last picture that moved you that you've purchased that you've brought into the fold? Well, you know, I, I can get moved by seeing an, an image again today. Mm. You know, and I was moved today by the, you know, the image you, you mentioned, Michael, which is uh, Manuel Alvarez Bravo's "The Daydreamer," mm. which has always been one of my favorite photos. And then I saw it again today. And I'm as moved, if not more moved, by it 40 years later than the first time I saw it. So I, I feel that way. I have Arnold Newman's uh, portrait of Stravinsky by my bed, and every morning, every yeah. morning I look at that and I just think, "Wow, how did he do it? I mean, why is it so great? Why, why is it so great?" And because but I can't look he, away. He was a great, great, great photographer. He was yeah. an incredibly brilliant, talented photographer. He was uh, crazy in many respects. I mean, I, I knew him quite well. And he was tell one me, of those people who... Tell me about who, this guy. Well, <laughs> well, actually, well, he was a brilliant man, but he, he couldn't stop talking. <laughs> he needed a lot of um, attention and I think a lot of love, which I think I gave him. And I remember spending five days with him he asked me, would I drive him to San Diego and help him get through the series of talks he was giving at the Museum of Photographic Arts in, in San Diego? So I liked him and he was a character and, and I respected his work enormously. So I, you know, I did it. You know, I was his, uh, it was like driving Miss Daisy. It was driving, <laughs> driving Mr. Newman. And that was, that was my assignment for five days is to look after Arnold. Wow. And it was great. I mean, we had wonderful meals, wonderful conversations. But at the end of it, I have to be honest, I was like drained. <laughs> I was so exhausted. Um, but that's okay. Because you, you know, have to be on. I would imagine. On, I mean, like... You have to be on. You have to be, <laughs> you know, you can't be silent with somebody who likes to talk. And, and he had so right. many great stories. And maybe I'd heard them before, but it doesn't matter. They were still great stories. And how he traded with Mondrian <laughs> for paintings, for photos. I mean, the guy was brilliant. Wow. He wow. had the most amazing art collection because all these great artists he photographed, you know, he would become friends with them and they would like him and be charmed by him. And, and he said, well, can I swap a photo for one of your drawings? Uh, you know, and they would say, yes, of course. Um, <laughs> so he was an amazing man, but at the end of the day, it's all about the work. And as you say, Michael, you look at that image and however kind of exhausting that person was at that time, if you can be in the presence of somebody who's created those kind of photos, wow, you know, that's wow. a gift. I'm a lucky guy. I don't have a job. You know, I do. <laughs> if you driving, have a passion. You have a passion <laughs> which somehow you turn into a way of life. And your greatest hope is that you can support yourself doing it. And 
your family and keep your gallery open and keep your staff employed and uh, support yeah. all these artists because artists have mortgages too. So yeah. we feel financially responsible. Are you also a, a photographer? Do you take a, pictures? No, I don't take pictures. I'm, I don't own a camera. I'm a I know it'd be a terrible thing, but I hope my eye <laughs> over the years has got good. You have a great um, eye. I mean, the, just from the works you have, who of the, I mean, there are the people who I know you collect, I've seen in your collection that are, of course, well-known from Cartier-Bresson or Willie Roney. But who do you think is not well-known by the public that you think should be at this point? Well, I keep going back in time. You know, one of my favorite photographers is Heinrich Kuhn. Uh, you know, I love turn-of-the-century pictorialists. Oh, photography. Really? Um, That's interesting. So I, I'm now kind of studying, as you, you know, studying 19th century photography. I think there's a wealth of great, great quote unknown material there that is so affordable still. Uh, so that's what I'm spending a lot of my quiet time, free time, if there's such a thing, going back in time now, trying to make discoveries. A lot of this stuff is still affordable. That's what's so amazing yeah. to me that you can get these great photographic prints. Uh, I mean, they're they're not cheap, but there might be a, a couple thousand dollars as yeah. opposed to yeah. what you would expect for a classic work by a great photographer. Yeah, would be. So I suppose that's the area which, which can be explored, and mm. maybe I'm going to spend more time exploring that when I can. Because it's great. It's great to buy a great photo, a great albumen. 19th century print in perfect condition for $1,500. That's a masterpiece <laughs> yeah. by somebody who is not, you know, terribly well known. Do you think you'll do another book perhaps? To I want open... to do book. I, I actually want to yeah. turn this power of photography series <laughs> into a book. Uh, I was well, I was thinking the same thing. I yeah. really enjoy reading them and these little, yeah, these anecdotes and stories so, behind uh, what you think about the photographs. It's yeah. That's, so that's book. my next project. I'll do I, it. I love that. If you, <laughs> promise to, if you promise to buy one each, I'll definitely. I promise to buy one and give them as presents. <laughs> I, you could, I mean, when, when, I guess when I saw you at APAD or wherever it was, and you had a bunch of photos that you were showing, and as we walked around looking at them, every single image, we would sort of pause and you'd tell me a story that was just an amazing yeah. story about that photographer or that scene or how that picture came to be. And it made it, it so much more amazing than just, I mean, I'd seen many of these photos, but it changed it completely. Because well, I, maybe I felt that you were receptive to that. And <laughs> you were sensitive. You're a sensitive soul, Michael. So uh, it's nice to share, meet, meet common people, you know. People well, I, hope you're, I hope the book that you write includes some of that because it's such it a will fun be. part. It will, yeah. it will be. Just, just got to find the time to do it. I have a question about a book that you've already done, though it's the Women or Woman, a Celebration. Yeah. Can you tell me about like the process of what was the inspiration? How did you edit down the photos that you wanted it's, to have and how did you put them in order? It started uh, the day after 9-11. I was like everybody else in the world, so depressed and full of kind of nihilism and, you know, despair. And there's a word that kind of floated in my brain and it was celebrate. And I said, okay, I got to find things to celebrate. And then I realized I had subconsciously collected a lot of images of women. 
So I thought, okay, let's uh, let's do a series of books called Celebrate the Celebration Series, and let's start with woman. And in a way, it ended up in San Francisco because uh, I know uh, Nyan McAvoy at Chronicle Books, and I showed him uh, a kind of draft of what I did, and he said, "Oh God, this is great. Let's do it." You know, that's how it happened. And I've been planning to do a book on celebrating children because I have two of them. You know, and sometimes they're lovely to be with. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then maybe do a book on you know. Maybe if you can find enough great images of men, great men to celebrate, you know, yeah, do that. So that's how it started. And I, I realized I had more images of women than anything else, maybe because I was trying to understand them better. So every, every, <laughs> every collecting, go. oh, it's an ongoing process. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, haven't, uh, I haven't come to any more conclusions, any deeper insight, but I'll let you know when I do. Good, please. <laughs> Please send that information along. I will. It will be patented. But uh, <laughs> so that's how that came. That came about. How did you choose? Like, how did you edit? How did you choose? Kind of the, the juxtapositions of the images, and it took me. I feel like that tells as much of a story yeah. of you know as a single image. Well, it actually took me a year to figure out the sequencing, and I just kept playing and playing and playing with it, and then you know one day when you just set it all out little bell goes off in your head and that to me was the time when to, to publish it because it's it felt whole and it felt that the the total was the sum of the part greater than the sum of the parts so it had a kind of power to it because there was no logic to sequencing it mm -hmm. uh, but it worked and that's when you know your symphony is completed without being pretentious about it you know when to stop you know when to stop yeah, yeah. I had a design mentor that always used to say, I asked him, when do you stop designing? How do you know it's done? And he said, when it's due. <laughs> but I like when you don't have a deadline. So, you know, how, you know, I didn't have know. a deadline. You just instinctively yeah. know when you should, okay, you've done the best that you can possibly do, do with this material. And it's it means, a great skill. I think you can become very creative, you know, when you have a deadline as well. And if someone says yeah. to you, I, I, I need that essay by next Wednesday at three o'clock. Mm -hmm. So whatever it takes, you stay up all night, drink lots of coffee and finish the essay. I think those creative constraints are essential yeah. for in every yeah. medium, you know, just putting a putting an end to it. There's that great line from Rogers and Hammerstein that, that they always asked, you know, what comes first, the music or the lyrics? And then they said, the contract. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the the question is, it's a bit varied because normally we ask this of photographers. And so I don't think it's uh, the question itself may be sort of um, a, a strange one. But with all that set up, um, Peter, if you could describe your collection or your eye or your kind of uh, take on photography, maybe in one word, what would that word be? Empathy. Ooh, good one. Wow. I like that. Can I ask you a question that may have to do with empathy? Is there's sure. a picture over your shoulder of, I think it's a young Queen Elizabeth with a corgi. Correct. I'm not, Correct. can you tell me about that picture? Okay. I, I, um, I was in London maybe three, four years ago, <clears throat> and I've been trying to meet this photographer who I'd known about 
called David Montgomery. He was an American photographer who moved to London in the 60s, swinging 60s. And mm -hmm. he had some really interesting work. But David, you know, like me, is a bit of a nutcase. And he was always, uh, <laughs> you know, a little evasive. But finally, we, you know, we got together and we became very friendly. And I discovered this body of work that he had been commissioned by the Observer magazine in London to go photograph the Queen in Balmoral. And I saw these photos and I went bananas about it because you're know, being English and you can never you know, lose your roots, nor should you. And we also own a corgi. You know, it, it's, uh, <laughs> I think my, my wife and my children love the corgi probably more than me. So I thought... <laughs> I, uh, Not true, I'm sure. I, I thought, um, God, I love this photo. And yeah. so we he'd never made any prints of it. So we, we oh. financed the production of the prints and we've been wow. trying to get a book done of it. But unfortunately, you know, dealing with uh, Buckingham Palace and the press office and all the people that Her Majesty surrounds herself with has not been easy. But uh, that's why yeah. that's it. There's, there's the queen, young queen with her corgi. Wow. And yeah. It seemed to be the perfect thing to collect and give a, as a gift to my family. So that's why uh, I'm behind it or in front of it. That's how I it came quite about. Like it. What? It's, it's a beautiful photo. And he managed to capture the queen just as a normal person. And if you go yeah. on my website you know, under David Montgomery, you'll see the whole sequence of his images of the queen. And they're incredible. And because there's no pomp and circumstance, you yeah. know, there's no. images of her, you know, just playing with a jigsaw puzzle. And there's one of her sitting in front of a cheap electric fire that you could buy at CBS for $20. And you're thinking, hang on a minute, this is the Queen of England. And you think wow. she would have a whole entourage of staff to make her right. a beautiful wood fire in the crowd. I'm sure you've all been watching the crowd, which is great. Yes. yes. Here she is, the Queen, sitting in front of a $20 cheap electric heater <laughs> with her corgis. Oh, I love it. I mean, she is, she's just, she's so relatable. You feel yeah, like you just normal. know it's such her a sweet or you picture. could. Yeah. It's a very sweet picture with a, about a great woman. And it's a great photograph. Yeah. David yeah. is a great photographer. And to be able to capture those kind of simple human moments of somebody you would normally be in total awe of to mm -hmm. be in their presence. Yeah. This is the queen, for God's sake! You know, this is not, <laughs> not some this is not some actress, you know, tr promoting her latest TV series. This is the queen, and she just sitting it quite there. Literally, is the queen of England? Yeah, like England. literally the queen. Yeah. Sitting there with her jigsaw puzzle and her dogs, and you know, having a cup of tea. I mean, you could contrast Love that it. with Annie Leibovitz's, you know, Queen Today, where she's yeah. it's just, you know. Well, um, she 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 knocked that off from Cecil Beaton. Cecil Beaton did those photos. Oh yeah, you know, forty. You look at Cecil Beaton's portraits of, of Her Royal Highness, and they're exactly what Annie Leibovitz uh, was re say stole, stole recreating, so, perhaps. Rec oh, was, was influenced by. I see, and I'm sure she would say that herself. 
Yeah, well, I mean, thank you, Peter. This has been been absolutely wonderful. I cannot wait for your book uh, to drop and uh, I can read more about these stories. Is there anything else that you would want to, um, anything else that you have to to promote or share or things that we can kind of put into the the notes? Well, I'm very, I'm actually very proud of our power of photography. I'll make sure there's a link. I'll make sure people can see that because sign up for the emails. Sign up for it, yeah. It's great. And uh, just keep well and keep safe. That's all we can hope for, right? And keep looking. Keep Keep looking. looking. Uh, Well, thank you. I mean, I hope people will become familiar with your gallery and and Power of Photography. And I was so... So wonderful to have you on the show Thank today. You. Thank you for having me here, both of you. Thank you. I will wrap it up. I, uh, Peter, I can't wait to see you next time I'm in Santa Monica. I will make Bye. sure to swing by at the Peter Fetterman Gallery. Great. And our show is recorded and produced in San Francisco. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to get show notes, see photos, and post comments. Please leave reviews and ratings on iTunes or wherever you listen. And don't forget to subscribe. We get new listeners from you telling your friends and spreading the word. If you know someone who might get something from us, please send them a link. Thank you to Mitchell Foreman for our theme music, Peter for joining us today, and all of you for hanging out. We appreciate your attention and hope we've given you some things to think about. Until next time.